Well, good morning again. Today we are praying that the Lord will be speaking to our hearts and into our lives. I'd like to start by sharing a story with you. Uh, Lutheran professor Mark Allen Powell shares a story in his book called Loving Jesus about how a pretty normal experience that he had in a grocery store actually got him thinking about how we relate to God. So on this particular day, as he was shopping for groceries, he was in the same aisle as a mother who had a young child in her shopping cart. And while she was shopping, the kid kept pointing at everything they passed and saying, Mommy, I want this. I want that. I want this. Mommy, I want this. And Mark said, it was a bit annoying, to be frank. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of all of this, I want this, I want that, the mom silently reached over and took the little boy out of the cart and held him in her arms and he was suddenly silent he didn't ask for anything else and watching that mark suddenly realized he never really wanted this or that what he wanted was her and maybe he didn't know that's what he wanted or how to ask for it or that it was even an option but for some reason when he found himself held all those other pressing demands just weren't so important anymore and it struck Professor Powell in a powerful way that there's a parable here for us, for one of the most important things we can learn about prayer and about God and about ourselves. To ask the question, what are our hearts truly longing for? And the book of Hosea is all about God's people rebelling, turning away from him, looking for security and life everywhere but in him. It's about our tendency to break God's heart and run after this, and I want that. Until we realize that not only is this not really what we need, but it's actually also not what we want. Today's Father's Day, and the reason that we set aside a day for fathers is, unfortunately, because we need to be reminded <laughs> to say thank you. And honestly, as you parents out there know, parenting can be a thankless job. Because when your kids are young, you are literally the only thing between them and death. Right? <laughs> because the only things they have is what you have given them. Right? And the commitment of parenthood is to choose to give over and over and over again in spite of their inability to be grateful for what you've done or even maybe even recognize it. So as a parent, in many ways, I think that's the closest analogy that we have to understanding God's relationship with us. And in Hosea, God shows us that we are, as his people, like children who disregard our Father's love. So in a moment, I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward and bring out some Bibles, if you'd like to borrow a Bible with us this morning as we look into this book of Hosea together. So by the time Hosea was written... God's people had divided into two kingdoms, a northern one and a southern one. The northern one is sometimes called Israel, Samaria, or Ephraim in the scriptures. It's kind of a shorthand for that kingdom. And the southern kingdom is sometimes called Judah, Jerusalem, or Zion. So if you see those words, that means the southern kingdom. And Hosea was sent specifically to the people in the northern kingdom to remind them who God is. So in Hosea 11, it's on page 1317 of your Quest Bible, if you want to follow along, God says through the prophet Hosea, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the balls, and they burned images 
incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. And even though God loved his people so tenderly like this, when they were in trouble, they chose to go to their enemies rather than turn to him for help. And so he continues in verse 5, Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? So in this moment, as a parent, God is just throwing up his hands and saying, Fine, you want to ignore my advice? Go ahead, deal with the consequences. But almost in the next moment, he follows it up with a sigh. Who do I think I'm kidding? <laughs> I can't. I just can't stay out of it. I love you too much. I can't walk away from this train wreck that you've created. Beloved, come home. In Hosea 1.8, he continues, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. You see, 2 Timothy 2 tells us about God. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. That's just who God is. God's fatherly love leads him to irrational acts of mercy. Mercy that we don't warrant or deserve. And it's called grace. And we see it very clearly in Jesus. We experience it through the Holy Spirit. But that grace has always been God's heart, even in the prophets of the Old Testament. So we have to ask, what is the situation? What is going on here in Hosea that God is responding to with this? Well, to answer that question, we need a pretty thorough Bible history lesson. So hang on with me here. It starts with David, the David of David and Goliath fame. David was a man after God's own heart. God made him king over his people. But David made a lot of mistakes. He loved the Lord passionately, though. So every time he made a mistake and stumbled, he turned back to God for help, and God would pick him up. And of all the amazing things about King David, the most amazing thing about him, his greatest strength was actually his humility because he never forgot who the true king is and God blessed him because of it. But then the reign of his son Solomon, after his, started off strong, but then Solomon got derailed by his own love of power and wealth. He stopped looking to God. And so God told the prophets that he was going to take most of the kingdom away from Solomon's line. And Jeroboam who had been working for Solomon up to this point, was told, if you will be faithful to the Lord, you will rule the northern kingdoms. So after Solomon's death, Solomon's son Rehoboam was set up to be king in Jerusalem in the south. And technically, he was king over all the tribes. So Jeroboam came from the north to represent the northern kingdoms, and he said to Rehoboam, listen, your father was really hard on us in the past, but if you will lighten up on us, we will honor you. As our king. But Rehoboam was kind of young, and so he asked for advice from the elders who had served with his father on how he should deal with this, and they told him, If you will be a servant to these people and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. They basically were saying, This is a great opportunity to build up relationships, to unite the kingdom. But then Rehoboam also decided to ask his friends, his peers, what they thought he should do. And they told him, you should rule them with an iron fist. Let them know who's boss. You can control them. 
And he thought that sounded a lot more fun, a lot more exciting, got more immediate results. So he sent the message back to the northern kingdom, my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. And he tried to force the northern tribes to serve him. And their reaction to that was, look after your own house, David. So basically, yeah, we're out of here. They went home thoroughly disgusted, and they chose Jeroboam to be their leader. And then, of course, in anger, Rehoboam decided to raise up an army and go after them, to force them to submit. And this is my favorite part of the whole story. Because in this moment, God sent a prophet named Shemaiah to intercept the army. And Shemaiah stood in front of the army of Rehoboam to give a message from God. In 1 Kings 12, 24, he said, This is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. Go home right now. <laughs> and guess what? They did. Seriously. War's off, guys. God said no. <laughs> 180,000 troops turned around and went home, and nobody died that day. Seriously, one of the greatest miracles of the Old Testament, in my opinion. 1 Kings 12, 24. Look it up. They believed God, and that was enough to humble themselves to his plan, even if they didn't like it. It's astounding. Now, only if the story went on to say, so both kings went home to honor the Lord. But unfortunately, that's not how it went. We human beings are really slow learners. So why is it that after we see how good it is to trust God, the next thing we know, we're right back to being led by our own selfish desires and fears instead. How quickly do we fall back into thinking what we really want is this, and we want that. And that's what happened to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam went back to the northern kingdoms to set up his reign, and immediately he hit a snag because there was only one temple of God, and it was in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. That's Rehoboam's territory. And Jeroboam got nervous that if his people went down there to worship God, it would hurt his authority as king. So he asks for advice from his neighbors, not from God, what he should do, and they tell him, you should set up your own temple, Jeroboam, or maybe two. It'd be so much more convenient for your people, and you'd have all the control. You can even make up your own festival days. Why not? You're the king. Now, the whole point of God's people traveling to the temple was to remind them there is only one God over all of them. And that's still why we gather to worship, to remind us we all belong to the same Lord, and he alone is God. But Jeroboam listened to the secular logic that said, this is so much better for you, Jeroboam. And so he set up two versions of the temple, one at Bethel in the south and one at Dan in the north. But since they weren't quite as majestic as the temple in Jerusalem, he added one extra thing to each of them, a golden calf. And he told the people about both of them, this is the Lord your God, just like the people had done in the Exodus. And it makes you want to say to Jeroboam, God just saved you from war. He set you up to lead, told you that he'd bless you if you follow him. And the first thing you do is ignore what he says about the temple, about idols, about what worship is for, and instead use it to promote your own power. Seriously. You can just about hear God's side. This again, what's with the golden calves? But instead, here Jeroboam should have known to trust the Lord who'd saved him twice. But now he's off running after what's shiniest. So little time it takes us to revert back from, God, you are so great, I trust in you, 
to, what I really want is a little of this and a little of that. And that's what led to the situation of God's people in Hosea. Because by the time Hosea shows up, generations have passed, and they were on to Jeroboam II. And by this time, his people had become so far removed from him that when God's people were in trouble, they actually turned to their enemies to try to turn their enemies against each other rather than reach out to God. They reached out to Egypt and Assyria. And spoiler alert, that wouldn't end well. The people had forgotten God and that he actually wanted them to call on him. So if you were God and these were your people, what would you do? Well, what God did was call in the prophet Hosea and tell him, Hosea, go and find an adulterous woman, one who runs around with every guy in town, and marry her. Now that probably wouldn't be the tack you would take, right? But Hosea finds and marries such a woman with the lovely name of Gomer. You're not going to find many girls named Gomer these days, I can tell you that. And Hosea commits to be Gomer's husband, to honor and support her, and she goes off running off with all the guys in town, and Hosea keeps going after her to call her back home. And God tells Hosea to promise to be faithful to her and her alone. But no matter what she's promised, she doesn't do the same. And now you might wonder, why would God do that to poor Hosea? <laughs> because God knew that we have a tendency to remember a message that we both hear and see. So Hosea becomes a living example. This is what's going on between you and God right now. Hosea represents God, and you and me, we are the Gomers. That he longs to be faithful to us, to give us his promise of love and commitment, and he's calling us to come home to him. So let me ask my fellow Gomers a moment. Why do we run in the case of the original Gomer, she was already known as an adulterous woman when Hosea married her, which means she has a backstory, which I'm willing to bet included some painful things that happened to her that broke her trust. And rather than risk hurt again, she chose to live only for the moment. Eat, drink, and marry, be merry, for tomorrow we die. She chose to live for I want this, I want that, because maybe someday I'll find something that makes me happy for a moment. But then Hosea comes to her, and he says, I promise I'm different. I will be there for you. I am committed to you. I will love you with a love that's more than just feelings, but a promise. I will always come to you no matter what you do. I will always want you to come home. Now, why would she run away from that? Maybe because it just seems too good to be true. Because once you've started to believe that life can only be found in the constant pursuit of the next big win or in the temporary thrill of the moment, it's really hard to imagine that peace and joy and love can be found in just trusting that you are loved by being still and knowing that he is God for you. And what's it going to take for you to trust that God loves you like that? Why do we fight it? Why do we run away? Why do we do everything except pray? Why do we look for happiness in everything except asking the Lord to lead us and provide for us and show us who he is? Is there somewhere deep down inside us that we feel that just like all that we really are are gomers? Where we ask, why in the world would God actually want me and his family after all I've done, after I've ignored him or chased after other things? Why would he want me back? Well, the truth is there's no answer to that but love. 
It's his irrational, passionate love for you and for me. But when the people didn't respond to Hosea's message comparing them to Gomer, God had Hosea present another analogy, the one that we started with in Hosea 11. That God's people are like his beloved son, who he raised as a child, who he loved tenderly and desperately, who drove him crazy and made him so mad, and yet he couldn't turn away because we're his, just his. And no one knows better than God that parenthood can be a thankless job. You parents pour into the lives of your children all your hope and your love for their future and so often just watch them turn away to make choices that you can see are going to be a mistake and cause them pain, even if they can't see it now. And this is where the heart of the God the Father is. But how do we stop looking for life in I want this, I want that? God knew the only way we'd respond would be if he came to us to invite us into his arms. And so that's what he did. Jesus came to show us what lengths our God will go to to call us home to his heart. And on the cross, Jesus' arms were stretched open wide in horrible suffering to embrace a world that's known horrible suffering with the proof of his own presence and promise to a broken world. I won't leave you just because you're broken. You're worth too much to me. I'm right here with you because that's how much I love you. That's how much I want you back. And because I want you back, I will be your way back. You see, in Jesus Christ, God shows us that his love is a love that will always welcome a heart that seeks him back home. And he paid the price to see that done. And to make that very point, Jesus told a parable in Luke 15 about a son who thought he wanted to find life in this and in that, who left his father to run off looking for something better and ended up broken by that futile search. And when brokenhearted, he headed home, confessing to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. What did he walk into? Anger? Judgment? I told you so. No, he walked into an embrace of joy and welcome of a father who had been running to meet him and catch him up in arms of love. In whose embrace, all those things he had thought that he wanted didn't seem so important anymore. Now, obviously, I can't say for sure, but I think today the pressures and the temptations of this world are even greater than in Hosea's day to lead us to think that we need to look for life in this and in that. We're constantly distracted by promises from this world of things that glitter but never really satisfy. But that same Heavenly Father is right here for you today with arms open wide, your Savior with scars that mark the holes of the nails to say to your scarred heart, Beloved child, you belong right here with me through it all. So there are two things that I think this book of Hosea is saying to us today. The first is that God's heart of grace has always been who he is, and that grace and that love is right here for you today. It's shown for you by what Jesus has done for you, the sacrifice he made to forgive you, to redeem you, to give you a brand new start in his grace. So this Father's Day, will you let your heavenly Father catch you up in that embrace? Today, we have some prayer volunteers who are ready to pray with you. 
to let them speak God's promise of his grace and his love over you, to let that love land in your heart, or to give you the opportunity to help them pray for you, to bring before God anything you want to today. I think that's what God is saying to you through this prophet Hosea, that his love is for you. But I also think there's a word here for us today, as God's people who are going through a time of transition between one human leader to another. And that's to ask the question, what are the this and the that that we can mistakenly run after that can lead us to forget who our true king is? Because we don't want to fall into the mistakes either of Rehoboam to try to force something God is not leading to fast-pace our goals, or to fall into the mistakes of Jeroboam to let fear of losing control or desire for what's convenient lead us into things that don't actually honor God's will. So if we're going to learn from Hosea, I think what we need to learn today is to hold on tight to our first love, to the Lord who holds on to us. That the first task for all of us in this time of transition is for God's people to pray, to deepen and worship in the knowledge of who we are in God's word. That will never change. To deepen in prayer and our relationships with one another and our service to our neighbors as we live out our mission of Jesus. To solidify in the foundations on which the Lord will build the next chapter of our lives together. So that's going to be the work of these next weeks and months. But that all starts and ends with knowing our place, our forever home in the Father's love. Because this and that and this and that can never hold a candle to his. And beloved, that's who you are. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming after us, for our hearts that have longed uh, to be fed and to be known. Lord, that you have been constantly seeking after us to bring us home into your love, into your power, into your grace. And so Lord, in this, this season of transition in this time, Lord, help us to find our anchor and our hope, and our joy, our peace, and your love, and in your love alone. And help us, Lord, to pour out that love to one another and to the world around us. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.